Good to see you. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Mark. When you get there, find the first chapter. The Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. Just hold that ready. I want to say hi to all the folks across the street, the video venue, and all you folks joining us online, wherever you might be. We're so glad to welcome you to our service today. While you're turning there to Mark chapter 1, <clears throat> let me just share with you that this message that I'm about to deliver is not 100% original with me. I was really inspired by a message I heard some time ago by a preacher named Brian Wilkerson called Brothers Interrupted. Uh, over the past several years, I have written a lot of sermons that I have shared with other pastors so that they could preach them. I'm sure they preached them better than I ever preached them, and I'm uh, thankful for that. And I'm also thankful that I have had the chance to hear other pastors preach, and sometimes what I hear inspires me. And so that's the case with this message. I want to be completely upfront about that today. Uh, I also want to share with you that uh, this is just a standalone message beginning next weekend. And I know fall break begins next weekend. It affects three weekends of the year for us. But my son Andrew and I are writing a three-week sermon series called Jonah, Running from God. We'll be talking about the familiar story of Jonah over the course of that time. Then we're going to share together for four weeks in a series called All In. It's our annual stewardship commitment uh, message, and it's called All In. We'll talk about uh, more things than just money when it comes to our commitment to Christ and uh, the church and the ministry here at Mount Pleasant. And then beginning the last weekend of November, I'm going to start preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, that'll take some time because there's 28 chapters there. When I say some time, I'm talking about a few years. We'll be in Matthew for a long time. But it's going to be a great study. We're going to talk about Jesus, and I can't think of anything better to do. So, just wanted to let you know about that. If you've got your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 1, I want you to grab them and stand together with me in reverence and respect for God's Word as I read a very brief passage of Scripture this morning that we'll spend some time talking about. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. After John, that was John the Baptist, by the way, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. All right, there it is. May God add his blessing to that reading from his words. You can go ahead and be seated this morning. Let's just talk about verses 14 and 15 for just a moment. Mark writes and says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this was the good news. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and, and believe the good news. The first thing that stands out to me is that phrase, the time has come. Let's just keep this really simple. When Jesus says the time has come, what he's saying is something is about to happen. That's how we understand that. He's saying something is about to happen, and the something that was about to happen was the kingdom of God. So here's a good question for us as we begin. What did Jesus mean when he used the phrase, the kingdom of God? What did he mean by the kingdom of God? What's that mean? What's that a reference to? Here's a good follow-up question to that. What do you think of? I'm talking about each one of you individually. What do you think of when you hear the words or the phrase, the kingdom of God? What do you think of? What comes to your mind? When first century Jews heard the words kingdom of God, they thought of a political kingdom that would be centered in the city of Jerusalem. 
And that, by the way, is why so many Jews in the first century did not receive Christ, did not believe in or accept Christ, because they were waiting for a Messiah who would come along and usher in a political kingdom located in the city of Jerusalem. But that's not what Jesus did. And you didn't have to see Jesus for very long to know that's not what he was ever going to do. That's not what he was about. And so that's one of the many reasons why the Jews in the first century did not believe in Jesus. They were looking for a Messiah who would set up a a political kingdom in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's what first century Jews would think of. When most of us hear the phrase kingdom of God, we think of heaven. For some reason, we think of heaven. I know that's the case because I've talked to people about this over the years. Many people today hear the kingdom of God and think of heaven. But neither one of those conclusions is correct. The kingdom of God is not a political kingdom in the city of Jerusalem, and the kingdom of God is not a reference to heaven. The kingdom of God isn't a time or a place. This is important, so write this down in your notes. Maybe even in the margin of your Bible there in Mark 1. The kingdom of God isn't a time or a place. The kingdom of God is a life. It's a life lived under the rule of God. Now, that's so important, I'm going to say it again. We'll leave that up there on the screen for you, but I want you to hear me say this again. The kingdom of God isn't a time or a place. The kingdom of God is a life. It's a life lived under the rule of God. That's what we need to understand. So when Jesus comes along, and by the way, when we open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 1 and we read this passage, Mark is telling us what Jesus' very first message was as he began his earthly vocational ministry, as he began his preaching and teaching ministry. So when Jesus comes along and says the kingdom of God is near, what he's really saying is there's a new life and a better life than what you're experiencing now, and I'm bringing it. This new life is here. I'm bringing it. It's available to you now. It's within your reach. In fact, in this passage, Jesus went on to say, you probably noticed this when we read it, Jesus went on to say that there are two things. In the context of this passage, he said there are two things that you need to do in order to receive and experience this new and better life. And those two things, he said you need to repent. And then number two, he said you need to believe. Let's talk about those two words for just a moment. First of all, he talks about the word repent. He says you need to repent. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word metanaeo. I'll put it up on the screen so you can look at it. Metanaeo. And literally translated, I mean, if you were to look this up in a Greek lexicon, the word repent or metanaeo means to change your mind. But when you think about it practically, on a practical basis, this is how we understand what it means to repent. It means to turn or to turn around. We've talked about this on repeated occasions over the years. I think I've told you before, when I was a little boy growing up in church, I was taught that to repent means if I'm walking down the road this way, I stop, literally stop, I turn around, and I walk the other way. This is the practical meaning of the word repent. It's the idea of turning away from one thing so you can turn toward another thing. And so Jesus says, if you want to experience this new and better life that I'm bringing, that I'm offering, the first thing you need to do is you need to repent. But here's the question. What is Jesus asking them to repent of? What is he asking us as we read this passage of Scripture today to repent of? We almost always associate repentance with the idea of sin. And so we say that to repent means you turn away from sin and you turn to God, which is so important. That's a necessity for all of us. But if you notice in this passage of Scripture, Jesus doesn't say, repent from your sin. 
He just says, repent. So what's he asking us to repent from? Now, I don't ever want to be guilty of reading too much into the Scriptures or too much into the text, but maybe what Jesus is saying here is when he says to repent, (coughs) excuse me, is he saying you need to turn away from the life you're living on your own so you can turn toward, so you can turn to the life, the new life, the better life that God has for you. Maybe that's what he means when he says repent. You need to turn away from the life that you're living on your own so that you can turn to the new and better life that God is offering you. Remember, this is Mark's record of the very first thing that Jesus ever said as he began his teaching ministry, his preaching ministry. So he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Or in other words, there's a new life available to you, and the first thing you have to do is turn away from your old life so you can turn to this new one. But he also said that you need to believe. You don't just have to repent to experience this new life. He also said that you need to believe, and that means a couple of things. First of all, it means you need to believe that it's possible for you to experience a new life. And that's important for some people who are so mired in, a, in an old way of life that they don't think they can ever change. First, you have to believe that you can experience a new way of life, but it means more than that. And this is what's really important. This is what's most important. It also means you've got to believe in him. You've got to believe in Jesus. The word believe, as we encounter it in our Bibles, especially in a setting like this, basically means intellectual assent to most people. Or in other words, it means intellectual acknowledgement or intellectual agreement. That's what it means to most people. But it's so much more than that. Because believing isn't just understanding something. It's not just agreeing with something. It's believing in it, understanding it, agreeing with it so strongly that you're willing to act on it. That you're willing to act on it. That's why, for example, sometime later in the New Testament, James, who was the brother of Jesus, when he wrote his epistle, wrote these words in James chapter 2 and verse 17. He said, faith, which, by the way, is just another word for believe, right? Everyone say right. He says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is what? Say the word with me. It's dead. And so he's saying faith or belief is not just an intellectual thing. There's more to it than that. It's not just an intellectual concept. A guy named Todd Hunter, I think, has given the best illustration of this that I have ever found before in a book that he wrote called Christianity Beyond Belief. And he illustrates this by talking about someone who is afraid of flying. Now, let's just suppose for a moment that that's you. He's talking about you, that you are afraid of flying. He says, there's no real tangible, concrete reason why you're afraid of flying. You just are. So you've never been on an airplane. But you really want to get over your fear. And so the first thing you decide to do is you're going to begin to talk to friends who have flown, and you're going to ask them to tell you about their experience. And that goes really well. And so the next thing you do is you go down to the library, and you check out some books about flying. And you read all about flying from the history of how it began until today. And after you do that research, you come to the conclusion that flying really is the safest way to travel. It's much safer for you to get in an airplane and go from point A to point B, for example, than it is for you to get in your car after church and go through the roundabout around the corner. It really is the safest way to travel. 
<clears throat> and so things are going well. You're tracking with all of this. Excuse my voice. I've got a terrible sinus infection this morning. I'm trying to make it through this third and final service. The next thing you do is you join a fear of flying support group. There's a local church in your community. That's a wonderful place, and it opens up its doors for people with all kinds of situations and circumstances. And so every Monday night, you go to that church, and you sit in this fear of flying support group or in a circle where we can look people in the face, and you hear their experiences in flying, and you can ask your questions and get answers. And so when it's all said and done, you've become convinced that there's no reason for you to be afraid to fly. So you get online, and you buy an airline ticket. You go to the airport. You make your way through security. You go down the terminal. You get on the jetway, and you walk to the jetway down to the airplane where the airplane is parked. And then you get to the end of the jetway. You know that part of the jetway where it ends, and then the plane is right there, and there's that little gap. There's that little bit of space right there between you and the airplane. You stop right there at the end. And you've got some room there, so you look around, and you look at the plane, and you notice that that plane is held together just by ordinary nuts and bolts. That's not what you expected. I don't know what you expected, but you didn't expect that that plane would be held together by the same ordinary nuts and bolts that you have in your garage back home. And then you notice something below when you look down, and there's an airplane mechanic below the plane, and he's fixing something on the plane. And you didn't expect to see that happen. And then you just look at that gap there between the jetway and the plane, and you realize that the minute you step off of the jetway onto that plane, you've stepped into a whole new reality, and your life has changed forever. And when that happens, you say to yourself, that's it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And you turn around, you walk back down the jetway, back out of the airport, get in your car, and you go home. Now, here's the question. Given all the research that you were involved in and all the things that you did to try to get to the place where you believed that flying was good, that you believed that flying was safe, given the fact that you never got on the airplane, do you really believe that it's safe to fly? That's the question. You may understand intellectually that it's safe to fly, but do you really believe it? You may understand intellectually that flying makes your life a whole lot simpler, that flying gets you where you need to go quicker, but here's the deal. Until you step off of the jetway and onto the plane, you don't really believe in flying. You don't. No matter what you understand intellectually, you don't really believe in flying. And it's the same way with the message of Jesus. You may understand that Jesus came to offer you a new life, a better way of life than what you've got today, but you haven't really believed that until you've surrendered everything to him. You haven't really believed that until you invited him. You've invited him to take absolute, complete control of your life. And honestly, friends, this is where a lot of people live today, intellectually understanding and even agreeing with Jesus everything that he says and everything that he offers, but never really, truly, honestly believing. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he comes along and says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, that's not something that you're going to experience until you're willing to turn away from the life that you're living now and make a complete 100% nothing held back commitment of your life to Jesus. Now, here's a great thing about this passage that we've got our Bibles open to that we're talking about this morning. Not only does Mark tell us 
what Jesus says when he comes along and he begins his ministry. But he also then takes it a step further and gives us a great example of what it looks like when somebody really embraces what he has to say. In fact, look back at verses 16 through 18. He gives us that example using two brothers named Simon. And of course, that's Peter. His name just hasn't been changed by Jesus from Simon to Peter yet. The two brothers are Simon and Andrew. In verses 16 through 18, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Now, Mark doesn't tell us too much about these brothers. He just tells us that they were brothers and that they were fishermen. That's really it. If you are familiar with the Gospels, you know that you can find out a little bit more about them and other records of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John, for example, the first chapter tells us that Simon and Andrew were already disciples of John the Baptist. They were followers of John the Baptist. And so, no doubt, they knew who Jesus was. No doubt, they probably already heard Jesus teach before. Mark doesn't tell us any of that. I think that's primarily because he wants us to get the full impact of this scene. He wants this scene to have an impact on our lives the way Jesus had an impact on their lives. And so he just tells us they're fishermen. There are two brothers who have already chosen their lives. They've chosen their futures. But then Jesus comes along and interrupts all of it one day when he says this, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, what I want you to understand is what Jesus did here in those verses was very surprising for a number of different reasons. I'm just going to give you three. Write these down in your notes. The first reason why what Jesus did was surprising is that in first century Palestine, rabbis didn't usually call their own disciples. Rabbis didn't usually call their own disciples. And that's what Jesus was. He was a rabbi. It's another word for teacher. And in ancient days, in first century Palestine, what you would do is you would go find a rabbi, you would find a teacher that you looked up to, that you liked, that you respected, that you wanted to learn from, and you would ask him for his permission to be his disciple, to be his follower. But that's not what happens here. Jesus flips the script, and he asks Simon and Andrew to follow him. And so Jesus must have really wanted these two fishermen to be his disciples. The second reason why what Jesus does here is surprising is because Jesus says, now listen to this, don't miss the subtlety here. Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't say, come study with me. Write that down. Exactly like that. Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't say, come study with me. Again, I just told you, rabbis in first century Palestine were teachers and so they taught their students in the ways of God and the Word of God. And here's the deal. Each rabbi had his own distinctive approach to doing this, his own distinctive approach to interpreting and applying the Scriptures. And so when students would follow them, when they would have disciples, those students would become apprentices of the way they approached and the way they handled the Scriptures. That's what usually happened. But Jesus changes this again when he looks at Simon and Andrew and he says, come, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when he says, come, follow me. Because when he says, come, follow me, what he's really saying is, come, be like me. That's what he's saying. Come, be like me. And again, don't miss that. 
there must have been something really compelling about that because Simon and Andrew were told were willing to abandon everything to do that. When Jesus came along and he said to these two brothers, come follow me, here's how we understand it. He was inviting Simon and Andrew into a personal relationship with him. He was inviting Simon and Andrew to become like him, to become like him. And they were willing to abandon everything to do that. When they first met Jesus, they were willing to abandon everything to become like him. Let me ask you a question. Let's just be personal for a moment. Can you remember when you first decided to follow Jesus? Can you remember that? Now, for many of us here today, we were probably very young when that happened. I was 10 years old when that happened. I wanted to do it much earlier. I have a brother that's 17 months older than me, and I can remember being at church in the church that we grew up in on a Sunday night. How many of you can remember going to church on Sunday night? And my brother felt the call of Christ on his heart and went forward and made a public profession of his faith, surrendered his heart to Christ, and then followed that up by being baptized into Christ. And I was moved by that. And I went down and sat on the front row next to my brother and my mother, and I begged my mother. I begged her to let me do the same. I begged her to do it. And she wouldn't let me. She said, you're too young. She said, I think you're just doing this because of the emotion of the moment. You need to make your decision from a little bit more of a secure standpoint. And so some time went by, and I went to church camp one summer, and I felt the call of Christ on my heart, and when I got back, I made that same decision. So I was just a little boy, and it's probably the same for many of you, although I'm sure that there are many of you here also or listening to me who made that decision much later in your life. Here's my question. As you think about that in your life right now, as you remember back to that moment, when you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, just like Simon and, and Andrew do here when Jesus calls them to follow him, did you have the sense in that moment, here's my question, did you have the sense in that moment that you were willing to abandon absolutely every other thing in your life to follow him? Did you have that sense in that moment that you were willing to abandon every other thing in your life to follow him? Because that's clearly what Jesus calls for. And if you didn't understand that, when you made the decision to follow Jesus, then either it wasn't explained to you correctly or you weren't listening close enough. Because when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to be willing to abandon every other thing in our life to do it. And friends, that quite frankly is where we've gotten off point in the American church. We've taken the call of Christ and we've, it sim we've made it simple for people. We've made it convenient. And it's not either one of those things. We've cheapened the gospel. And I use those words directly. We've cheapened the gospel by telling people that they can buy in without selling out. But that's not how it works when you follow Jesus. Let me illustrate that for you. About a century ago, there were a group of missionaries that came to be known as the one-way missionaries, and they got that name because they purchased single tickets to the mission field without any concern or worry of returning home. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings literally into coffins. And as they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved and everything they knew, knowing that they would never see them or return home again. One of those missionaries was a man named A.W. Milne, 
He set sail for New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary who had traveled there before him. But he didn't fear for his life. And he didn't fear for his life because he had already died to himself, which is what Jesus calls all of us to do. His coffin was already packed. And so he spent the next 35 years of his life living among those people. And when he died, the tribe members buried him in the middle of the village, and they inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. That's what it means to die to yourself and abandon everything, which is what Jesus calls for, nothing less. The third thing that makes what Jesus did that day with Simon and Andrew so unusual, write this down, is Jesus said, come, follow me, which is to say, come, be like me. He said, come, follow me, and here it is, and I will make you fishers of men. Two things stand out to me there. First of all, he uses the word men generically there to refer to all people. And second, he wasn't really calling them. At that point, he was sending them. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He wasn't calling them as much as he was sending them. In other words, he wasn't just asking them to follow him. He was asking them to join him, to join him in going into all the world and offering this brand new kind of life to all men everywhere. He was asking them to join him by going into the world and reaching people in his name. He interrupted their lives that day, their lives as fishermen, so that he could give them a better life. And part of that better life was a life with, much, with a much greater purpose. And that's what Jesus wants to do for all of us. Where did we ever get the idea that we could follow Jesus and not be deeply committed to doing the same things that Jesus did? Where did we ever get the idea that we could follow Jesus and yet not live every single day of our lives on mission? Not live on mission. A man named Richard Stearns has written a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. The subtitle of the book is What Does God Expect From Us? I want you to listen to this quote. He writes and says, being a Christian requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. And then he says, if your personal faith in Christ has no outward expression, then your faith has a hole in it. Basically saying, Jesus didn't say, come follow me and I'll take you to heaven. Jesus said, come follow me and I'll send you into the world. Jesus' call to experience a whole new kind of life is about embracing the mission of living and sharing your faith every day, everywhere you go, with everyone you meet, either through your words or your example or your actions. And that's what all of us need to do, every one of us. That's the challenge I've given in every service so far. You know, it's easy for us to come to a church like this that has so many different things to offer and over the course of time just kind of separate ourselves from any responsibility to the rest of the world and to get to a place where our faith and our Christianity is more about making sure that things are happening that make us happy than living our lives on mission in a way that requires us to reach out to people who need to experience a brand new kind of life. 
I remember leading a men's Bible study some time ago on a Monday night. I used to do that up in the chapel. We used to call it the Braveheart Men's Bible Study. It's something we'll probably do again, but not uh, for a little while. I don't remember what we were studying on that particular night. But after it was over, we had a great time together in the Word. And after it was over, most of the guys were filing out. And one of the fellows came up to me afterwards. And he was very sincere, very well-meaning. I'm not criticizing him in any way with what I'm about to say. But he came up to me and he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I love to come to the Bible study. I love to open up the Bible and we talk about it and we apply it and we get these challenging truths. But then when it's over, we just kind of go home like business as usual with nothing left. What, what do we need to do? And... What I wanted to say was you go home and you live it out. I can't, I can't follow you home and I can't hold your hand and I can't stand over your shoulder and prompt you along the way with what you're supposed to do, with what you've learned from the Scriptures. You just live it out and you put it into practice every day of your life. But so many of us think that all there is to being a Christian is coming to the worship service being filled and being fed and being satisfied and then just going back to life completely separate from all the things that we've just learned and that we've just talked about. But Jesus calls us to live our lives on mission, to take our faith, the reality of our faith, and live it out every day, everywhere we go, with everyone that we meet. And you can do that. Everyone that I'm talking to this morning, you can do that. Everyone in this room, all of you across the street, the video venue, everyone who's listening to me online, you can do that. And you know what? Quite frankly, some of you can do that in bold and aggressive ways because that's the way you're wired. You can. You can be bold about it. I think of the story in John's gospel in John chapter 5 about the lame man who was laying by the pool. You remember the story? There was a pool of water there, the pool of Bethesda. And every now and then the water would be stirred. And there was a belief that if you could get into the water while it was being stirred, you could be healed from whatever your physical problem was. And Jesus comes and he sees all these people by the pool of Bethesda that day. And he spies this one man who'd been there for years. What was it? 38 years, something like that. And you know what Jesus does? He just confronts his life in a very bold and aggressive way. He walks right up to the man and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy gives him the same old lame excuse that he'd been using for years. He said, when the water's stirred, I have no one to help me get in, so I can't be healed. And Jesus just confronted his life, bam, right there. And some of you can be the same way. In fact, some of you know people, and you're going to interact with them tomorrow when you go through your life, who you need to look at in the face and say, do you want to live the same way? Do you want to keep living the way you're living now? Are you happy with your life the way it is now? You know the answer. You know the answer is no. But you've never had the courage to say anything to them about it. You've never had the courage to confront them. You need to, you've never lived on mission to the point where you've been willing to do that, and that's what you need to do. That's what all of us need to do. That's a part of living on mission. But I understand that some of you can't do that in as bold and aggressive way as others because that's not the way you're wired. I want you to know that you can take your faith with you tomorrow and you can live it out in a way that God can use to make a really big difference in someone's life or maybe even change the world for someone, at least for someone, if you're just willing to live out every day the kindness of Christ and the example of love that Christ has and speak words of hope and encouragement that Christ would speak. And if you're just willing to do that, just take your eyes off yourself long enough to do that for someone else. God can take even the smallest actions and sometimes the seemingly most insignificant things that we do and words that we say, and he can use them to reap a harvest that you and I never even dreamed of. 
Let me give you an example of something like that. One of my favorite stories, and this is how we'll close. Nearly 100 years ago, the Philadelphia church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo, one of the darkest parts of the world. Their names were David and Sve Flood and Joel and Bertha Erickson. They macheted their way through the jungle and established a small mission statement, a station rather, close to a village they wanted to reach. During the first year, they didn't see a single convert. The village was resistant to the gospel because they were afraid that they were going to offend their local tribal gods. But that didn't keep this one woman, Sve Flood, from sharing the love of Jesus with a five-year-old boy who delivered fresh eggs to her back door every morning. Not long after she got there, she became pregnant, and she really struggled and and had a difficult time during her, during her pregnancy because of malaria. And finally, she gave birth to a baby girl they named Diana on April the 13th, 1923. But sadly, 17, late, 17 days later, she died. She died there in the Congo. And her husband David made a casket, and he buried his 27-year-old wife in the Congo on a mountainside overlooking that village that they tried so hard to reach. Grief turned into bitterness and It flooded David's heart. He gave his daughter Aina to the Ericsons and returned to Sweden with his dreams dashed and a broken heart. He forewarned everyone he knew never to mention the name of God in his presence. That's how bitter he was for what happened. The Ericsons took Aina and they raised her until she was a toddler. But sadly, both of them died within three days of each other when tribe members of the local village poisoned them. Aina was then given to an American missionary couple named Arthur and Anna Berg. The Bergs adopted her and gave her a new name. They named her Agnes, and they called her Aggie. Eventually, they returned to America to pastor a church in South Dakota. And after high school, Aggie enrolled at North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And there she met and married a fellow student named Dewey Hurst. They started a family on their own and then began to serve churches together. And then sometime later, Dr. Hurst became the president of Northwest Bible College. On their 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave the Hursts a special gift, a trip to Sweden. And Aggie's sole purpose in going was to find her biological father, who had abandoned her some 50 years earlier. They searched in Stockholm for f- five days without a trace. And then finally, on, <coughs> excuse me, on the last day, just before their departure, they got a tip that led them to a broken-down ramshackle apartment building where on the third floor they found Aggie's dad. He was on his deathbed with a failing liver. The last words David Flood ever expected to hear were, Papa. It's Aina. And the first words out of his mouth were filled with remorse. He said, I never meant to give you away. When they embraced... A 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. A father and a daughter were reconciled that day, and a father was reconciled to his heavenly father for all eternity. When Aggie landed in Seattle, the next day she learned that her father had died while she was in flight. Now, here's the rest of the story. Five years later, Dewey and Aggie Hurst attended their church's world conference in London, England. 10,000 delegates from around the world had gathered at Royal Prince Albert Hall. One of the speakers on opening night was a man named Ruhagida Degora, the superintendent of the church in Zaire. And what caught Aggie's attention the most was that he was from the region in the Congo where her parents 
<coughs> excuse me, had been missionaries a half century before. And after the message, she spoke to him through an interpreter. She asked if he knew the village where she had been born, and Ruhagita told her he had grown up in that village. She asked if he knew of missionaries there by the name of Flood, and he said, every day I would go to Svei Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. And she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me, he said. Then he added, shortly after I accepted Christ, she died <laughs> and her husband left. She had a baby girl named Aina, and I've always wondered what happened to her. When Aggie revealed that she was Aina, he began to sob, and they embraced like siblings. Like siblings separated since birth. And then Ruhagita said, Just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave. On behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire, thank you for letting your mother die so that we could live. See, here's what we all understand, or at least need to understand. When you turn away from your old life to the life that Jesus offers, and you believe in him, not just an intellectual agreement or acknowledgement, but you believe in him with all your heart so that you're willing to act on that belief, then the reality of that belief will be demonstrated by you living your life on mission every single day, wherever you go, with whoever you meet. Whether it's in a bold and aggressive way, and I'm telling you, some of us should be able to understand this morning that that's what God calls us to do or whether it's in a quiet and a subtle way, God can take your efforts to live your life on mission, and he can use them to change the world, at least for someone somewhere. And Jesus is looking for people who are willing to do that. He's looking for people who are willing to live on mission and change the world.